Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Here in the second half of chapter one, really all the way into chapter three, we're dealing with some sensitive topics as well. We're dealing with the topic of sin. And today we'll continue to consider this, the concept of of sin, but not just that, also God's judgment. And these are the things that a lot of people don't like to talk about. These are some of the things that admittedly has caused some people to say, I I don't don't know about church because I'm uncomfortable with this idea of God's wrath and God's judgment. But we must consider it because, as Paul will say, it's part of the gospel. This is part of the truth of the gospel. And, and, And we must pay attention to that. We must be aware of that. What Paul seeks to do here in this first chapter is to make people aware of their sin because if not aware of our sin, then we really don't understand our need for a Savior. And so it is foundational for a right understanding of the gospel. And this is what Paul's doing. The first half of the chapter, it's his introduction. It's just him introducing himself and and explaining who he is and and giving insight into how he views his own identity, which the amazing thing is can be our identity as well. No differently than Paul. We as believers can say, I'm a bondservant of Christ. My life is not my own. It belongs to Jesus. And and this is what Paul is communicating to them. And he makes his way all the way there to to verses 16 and 17 where he really gives us the thesis for the entire book. As Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's it's this that Paul will then continue to build on really throughout the entire letter to this church in Rome. But here, as he starts to transition into chapter 2, he's going to deal a little bit more with what we would refer to as hypocrisy. While in the second half of chapter 1, he's dealing with the sinfulness, really of all humanity, the sinfulness we see on display, especially amongst those who, who reject Christ, who are not believers. What Paul begins to deal with in chapter 2 is that there are even those who would say they are a part of the church the capital C church, Christ's church, and they would look upon these sins with a sense of judgment and condemnation. And so Paul here, though, in context, he's absolutely writing to the Jews. There's application for us as the church today as well because it's easy for us when we, when we read of sin, when we consider our culture, when we know of the things that are happening in our world today, it's, easier, it's easy for us to look and to say, how dare people? And, and, and why would people live this way? Or why would people do these things? But, but in judging, we also judge and condemn ourselves. Our own hypocrisy uh, sometimes is of great issue in our own lives. And so Paul begins to deal with this as well as we transition into chapter 2. And so um, that's where we'll pick up today in verse 1 of chapter 2. If you would, just agree with me once more in prayer. Father, we do pause here this morning and give you thanks, Lord, for who you are, for what it is that you've done. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which you've already moved in our midst here this morning. And Lord, we pray that it would continue as we look to your word now. We pray for understanding that by your spirit, Lord, you would help us to make application in our lives, to understand your word here today. Toward the end, Lord, that we would leave changed and transformed, more in love with you and uh, Lord engaging in fellowship here today that's that's pleasing to you that gives you glory 
And so, Father, uh, continue to do that work here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. I want to pause right at the beginning here and, and, and just make note of the fact that Remember, Paul, as he's writing, he's not breaking his letter up into chapters. These are things that we've added later on where we see natural breaking points in the letter. For him, it was a continual letter. And so when we see therefore, it's important to understand it's connecting the previous thoughts. And so as a result of, of Paul's analysis of, of all the sin that we see, and, and remember, Paul's been dealing with some sensitive stuff here. Here in chapter 1, he deals with the sin of homosexuality. But lest we focus in in only on that which we have a tendency to do in our culture today and say that's this really big thing that's, that's, that, that, that the church has, has long been complicit in, in condemning uh, but also in judging and then not really considering the other ways in which sin is present in our own lives or that sin is, is present in others' lives. Paul says Here, here's all the sin that we are guilty of. And, and so as he makes his way through this, then he's connecting this thought to chapter 2 here, saying, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Now, I want us to quickly, I'm, I'm all of, uh, don't, don't worry, this is not an indication. I don't think of how the morning will go, though I'm a half a verse in. I want to look somewhere else for a moment. Uh, in 2 Samuel, I think it's a fitting place for us to look. In 2 Samuel in chapter 12, uh, this is the point where David, King David, has just uh, had an affair with Bathsheba. He's made attempts to cover up this affair uh, by bringing her husband back. Her husband, being a, a faithful man and a faithful soldier, uh, does not engage in, 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 in David's plan. And so David seeks out an alternative to sort of cover up uh, his tracks here. And he sends, uh, he makes a way for Uriah the Hittite to be sent out to battle, to essentially go on the front lines such that he will die. And, and so uh, very much summarizing there, but the implication is that David here, a man after God's own heart, has reached a very low point in his life where he's had an affair and now he's guilty of murder and he's really seeking to cover it up. He's seeking to suppress it. He's seeking to deny what no doubt his conscience is bearing witness to. And in chapter 12, we have Nathan the prophet who comes to confront David. And we find here at the beginning of chapter 12 in verse 1 and following, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And in verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. 
Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You see, what we see here in the life of David is he, he's, he's lured into a little bit of a trap, but it's, it, it, it's, it's on behalf of Nathan here that sees fit to confront him. He knows what he needs to do. He knows that he needs to, in love, speak truth to David so that he would understand the significance of his actions and the hypocrisy that's on display. And, and I mention that here this morning because as we start to enter into what Paul is communicating here in chapter 2, I think for us today, some of us need a Nathan that will say, you're the man. You're being a hypocrite. Because once again, it's so easy for us to look at the sins of chapter 1 and to find ourselves as those who attend church, as those who profess to be Christians, to take a step back and to look at that and to say, look how bad everybody is. Look at the sin. Oh God, I'm so grateful that I'm, not, that I'm not that way, that I'm not doing these things. And we find ourselves then in a place of judgment over others. And we're not to be. What we see here in chapter 2 is a picture of hypocrisy. And the fact that just as lost as those who God gave up to their desires and passions, we can be lost in religion. And we can be lost in self-righteousness. But in the same way that Paul in chapter 1 is seeking to make known one's need for the gospel because of their sin, this same thought process continues in chapter 2 as he looks at some of the characteristics of God's judgment, making sure that people know their, their, their spiritual condition and their need for a Savior. So Paul says, therefore, you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Why? Why are they inexcusable? For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. How do you condemn yourself? For you who judge, practice the same things. You see, folks, we may not be guilty of the same sin of our neighbor, but we have a really good knack for looking at their sin and saying, how dare they? He says, you're inexcusable, you who judge. You're condemning yourself because you do the same thing. And as we'll see through the rest of this chapter and into chapter 3, is that we're all guilty. Guys, there are none righteous. We're all in need of saving grace. And apart from the blood of Christ, apart from the gospel, none of us are righteous. And if you don't have Jesus, if your life is not transformed, if it's not being transformed, then the judgment of God is upon you. And that's an unpopular thing to say these days, sadly. But it's true. God's, God's wrath is real. Far too many people have lost a sense of a holy and righteous God who has an absolute standard that we can't meet but for the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives us insight then into the character of God's judgment. Because generally, again, when people hear about God's judgment, their inner lawyer comes out, right? We think about judgment and wrath. We, and, and even when we're you know, interacting with others who, who have deemed that we are wrong in a situation, we're really good at, at defending ourselves. We're really good at being righteous. We're really good at convincing ourselves why we're right, why we're okay, why everybody else is worse than us. Paul wants us to understand the truth about God's judgment. He says in verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. There's a few things we'll learn here about God's judgment. The first of which is that Paul says God's judgment is according to truth. It's not subjective like our judgment is. Our judgment is rooted in our self-righteousness. It's rooted in our feelings. It's rooted in our opinions. God's judgment is not. It's rooted in truth and it's absolute. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Paul here continuing to address the hypocrisy that's on display. He says that God's judgment makes no exceptions. God's judgment is according to truth, and God's judgment makes no exceptions. If you're practicing the same thing, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment when someone else will not? What makes you so special? This is what he's asking the Jews, and he's going to continue to drive the point home as he begins to address address and indict them on their religiosity and their so-called morality. And we need to evaluate those same things in our own lives. God's judgment makes no exceptions. Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, God's judgment is rooted in truth. God's judgment makes no exceptions. And God's judgment is patient. Make no mistake about it. We must ask, and if we consider the first chapter where in three separate occasions Paul writes that God gave them up, there are times when our fleshly pursuit of sin, God allows us to continue in that. He allows us to just go after what it is that we want to go after, and in so doing, we bring His judgment upon ourselves. There's nothing else that God needs to do other than to just allow us to pursue those things, and we will find ourselves eventually in a mess of our own making. But, but His grace and His goodness is still so overwhelming, it's still so, uh, so powerful that even in those moments then we can say, Lord, I, I've, I've made a mess of things. Would you forgive me? Would you restore me? But there are other times when God is being patient. When He is being good towards you, He's, His forbearance, His long-suffering, His goodness is allowing you time to repent. He's demonstrating patience and kindness to allow for repentance. God's kindness towards those in sin is not rooted in, well, they're not as bad as the next guy, so maybe I'll just let them slide. Or, you know, everyone else seems to be doing it these days, so I guess I'll just start to look away from this. No, His kindness is to lead you to repentance. So rest assured, if you're playing with fire, if you're engaging in habitual sin, but it seems as if nothing is really coming upon you, repent. God's kindness towards you is intended to lead you to repentance. Verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the, reg- of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. God's judgment is according to truth. God's judgment makes no exceptions. God's judgment is patient. And God's judgment is also fair. If in your impenitent heart, that is in your lack of repentance, you just continue to presume upon God's grace, thinking, oh, it's God's job to forgive me. Or, you know, here it is. I've lived another day. It seems like a pretty good day. It must not be that what I'm doing is all that bad. You're just simply heaping up judgment upon yourself. That will come. This would be where Paul is pleading, and I too with you, that if there's habitual sin in your life, do not continue in it, but recognize that God has been showing you grace. In His patience, He's allowing you time to repent. He goes on to say eternal life. To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first 
and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Verse 11 tells us there also that God's judgment is impartial. All throughout history, men have sought to classify people. Men have sought to achieve certain levels and status to set different groups apart, to lord things over others. But the fact of the matter is it's always been one human race, though we don't recognize it always as such. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing for those who are coming to salvation, that it makes, it makes no difference who you are or what you've done or what you have, you have achieved or what you haven't achieved. His salvation is available for all. He died for all. He desires that none would perish. But in the same way that it's level at the foot of the cross for those who come to Christ in repentance, it's that same truth for His wrath and His condemnation. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter how supposedly moral your life has been. Without Jesus, you are condemned. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. We see a parenthesis there likely in your Bible in verse 13 that carries through the end of 15. What that means is that you could take that chunk of scripture and remove it and then sandwich the others together and it continue to read the same. It would make sense. I want to do that for us now. Verse 12 and verse 16 together. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That day will come. There will come a day where every single person will stand before the Lord. Some will stand before the Bema seat. They will be judged for their good works and they will enter into glory. Some will stand before that great white throne before they enter into an eternal torment. Now he goes on to say here, for not the hearers, going back to verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So we see here that God's judgment is for all. And furthermore, that God's judgment is according to the gospel. Listen, the gospel is not about your health and your wealth and your prosperity and your feelings and your happiness. All of those things may be the fruit of salvation. Some of those things are His goodness and His kindness, His grace towards you. But none of those things are what the gospel is. All of them are just blessings of His grace. The gospel speaks of judgment. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, speaks of judgment. It speaks of God's wrath. That is upon those who reject Christ, who in their hardness of hearts are convinced that they are just fine without Him. Failing to see that the Creator God of the universe is holy and righteous, that He upholds a standard that we alone cannot meet apart from Jesus, that we cannot have a right relationship with Him or a righteousness that warrants eternal life, so that He gave His Son Jesus for us. That's the Gospel. And here's the cool thing. Paul says, it's my Gospel. He says, it's my Gospel. 
That's not Paul saying, this is mine and look what I've done and look at the work that I've accomplished. He's saying he's owning it. This is another way of Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. He says, because there's power in it. There's truth in it. He says it transforms lives. It sets people free. It restores. It reconciles. It redeems. It justifies. It glorifies. That's my gospel. But you see, it needs to be the gospel of your heart too. It needs to be our gospel. We, like Paul, need to say, that's my gospel. It needs to be the gospel that's transformed your life. This is what Paul's beginning to address here as he makes his way through this and he highlights the judgment of God and he says, you're, in, you're without excuse. You're inexcusable, man, who judge somebody else when you yourself are doing the same thing. What he's doing here is he's getting to the heart of the fact that there's hypocrites. There's Jewish people who are a part of this that are saying, listen, I'm good because I have the law. I'm good because I have the circumcision. I'm good because I'm a Jew by name. But that means nothing. And the same thing needs to be addressed to those who consider themselves to be a part of the church today. It's not just our association with the gospel. It's not just our proclamation of the gospel. It's not just our proximity to the gospel. It must be the gospel that has transformed our heart, that's transformed our lives. Paul speaking to the Jews here, he indicts them, but by extension us as well as he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Folks, we can be deeply religious, but not converted. We can have the form of knowledge and truth, but, n- but not know it truly ourselves and to live it out. Listen, I shared this during the first service. I'll share it again. And, and, and I'm somewhat thoughtful about this because this is being recorded. And I know that somebody could tune in. They could watch. They could listen. And I don't want such a person to be offended. But we have made a point of going through our community up here on a fairly regular basis. And, and, and with some, it's been wonderful. We've had wonderful interactions. You meet people who are believers. You're able to have that, that, that instant relationship, that instant fellowship that's no different than us going to, to Puerto Rico and, and, and somebody not speaking a lick of English and me not speaking any Spanish. And man, we can just be hugging and just know we love each other. And that happens. But there are other places I go and doors that I knock on. And because in particular, we're right here in the so-called Bible Belt. And I say, hey, we're from this local church. Do you belong to a church? Oh, yeah, I go to church. I belong to a church. Which one is it? Well, it's such and such. Well, where's that at? Oh, it's three hours away. Three hours away? That's a heck of a commute. Well, yeah, it's the church that what? I grew up in. It's the church I grew up in. When do you go? When I go visit mom on Mother's Day? Right? And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to cast stones here, but this is a lot of what we're facing. And people who think that because they grew up in a church, because their family's in a church, or because their, their, their relatives are super involved in a church, or whatever the case may be, it means nothing. Take what you know of the Bible for how a Christian should live and act and treat others. 
Just for a moment, in your mind, just, you don't have to quote a verse in your mind. Just think, generally speaking, if someone were to say, hey, what should a Christian be like? How should they live their life? You could probably come up with a few things that should be characteristic of a believer, right? Generally speaking, they're going to be kind. They should be kind. They should be forgiving. They should be you know, demonstrating repentance. They do something wrong. Hey, man, I'm sorry. They, they, pro- they probably shouldn't be prone to lying. You should be able to trust them, okay? They should, their life should be somewhat of a moral life. You should be able to look at their life and say, man, they got, they got a good life. They're, they're honest, right? They're, 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 if they're married, they're faithful to their spouse. There's, there's things that should be evident. Take that and then compare it to what you're seeing in our country today. Think about what you're seeing on social media. Think about what you see on the news. Think about what you see in TV shows, what you see in movies. Think about what you, if you still read a newspaper, what do you read in that newspaper about what's happening? Just any sort of information that's coming into your life that's giving you a reflection of what's going on in our culture, what do you see? And then compare those two things. Do they, do they mesh? Do those things look like, hey, that, th- those are consistent. Chances are, I would submit to you from my perspective, they do not. You would see a contrast. And you might be saying, well, what's your point? That's the world. These are believers. Well, My point would be this, a Pew Research poll, a recent Pew Research poll suggested that still, even still today, 67% of Americans would call themselves Christians. If 67% of this country says that they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, something isn't right. Something's not right. Because that tells me that the majority of this country knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That doesn't reconcile with what I see. What then does that suggest? Well, it probably suggests to us that a large population of those who call themselves Christians are not. A Barna research poll done in 2019 suggests this, that true, actual, born-again believers, evangelicals, account for 6% of our population. Now, I don't know that that, statistically speaking, adds up to me, but maybe because if it's true, that scares me. And it doesn't scare me because I'm worried about the church church is his he's he's got a good hand on it it scares me because statistically speaking that means a whole lot of people that i probably think are brothers and sisters in christ may not be and i don't stand up here this morning and share any of these things from a place of judgment and condemnation as i look out at all of you not at all i share this from a place of saying that was me that was me i was that person I was that person who said, who, who, who dared to judge another, heaping in that condemnation upon myself because I was guilty of the same thing. I was the person who, as Paul writes about in verse 24, that because of me, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That was my story. I was one who for many years told people, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but so many other aspects of my life did not match up, and I know that I caused other people to blaspheme the name of God because what they saw in my life didn't make sense. And they said, if that's, if that's what being a Christian is all about, then I don't want anything to do with it. And I praise God in his kindness towards me that over the years he's given me opportunities to right some of those wrongs. But I think about the way in which this is continuing today in our culture. The overwhelming hypocrisy that's on display by the so-called church is causing more and more people to blaspheme the name of God. 
Just say, forget it. And listen, because I'm making a trend to saying controversial things as we go through this study. Please bear with me. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm really not. We've talked about some of these things before, but I'll tell you, I'm grieved. Over the last year especially, Christianity has become synonymous with politics. And in particular, it's become synonymous with the GOP or with Republicans or with Trump and even worse things. And I'm not making a statement about any of those people or any of those things this morning other than this. Christianity is not a political party. It's not. Politicians and community leaders embroiled in scandals are claiming the ideals of the Christian faith in their own defense. And it's sickening. And I'm tired of it. But even more than that, I'm tired and I'm grieved and I'm hurt by people I've long respected and trusted in the Christian community, in the church, I can't say as a whole, but many within the church who have seemingly overlooked sin and dismissed the holiness of God in an effort to maintain some sort of power with the view that what's at stake in our country is worth the compromise. And it's not. And all that simply communicates is a lack of faith in a God who is bigger than all of those things. And I, please, I'm not, I'm not frustrated with any one of you this morning. But I'm grateful that God is continuing to show me and to challenge me to look at those who are lost, those who reject God, and to look at the sin in their lives and to grieve it. And to know that I was lost too. And they need Jesus. And that's all they need while also then giving me what I feel like is a righteous anger of those who say they know Jesus but act anything but. Because I know that too. Christianity is not a political party. It has no infallible preeminent leader save Christ and Christ alone. His church was founded by him, that is Jesus, and his word says, Jesus himself says, hell itself cannot overcome it. And the Holy Spirit is still at work today in true believers who are called to be salt and light and to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on our communities and on the lost and on our circles of influence. And do I love this country? Yes, I do. Do I want to see it go the way that it seems to be going? No, I don't. But who am I? Who am I to suggest that somehow I'm more special that where I live needs to be this way, whereas my brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world serve the Lord with such faith, such zeal, such fervor, where they risk their lives in some cases on a daily basis because they know and they believe that their hope is in the gospel and Jesus Christ alone. Well, they would love to know some of the freedoms that we enjoy, but they say that doesn't matter. It's the gospel that transforms hearts and minds. Do I want, do I want for our country to say no to abortion? Yes, I do. Do I want for there to be a president who says, church, you are the backbone of this country. Do what you do and do it well. You've got freedom to do it. I, yeah, absolutely. Why would I not want that? But the only way I'm going to get that is if the church does its job. It's the only way. Now, is the reputation of the church today in our country, the way in which it's become synonymous with all these things and how so many people are looking at it and saying, I don't know. Is that our fault? In some cases, maybe. For me, yes, I can look back and I can say, man, Lord, I've done some things that are foolish. I've said some things that are foolish. I'm grateful that in the 20 years that I've had the chance to, 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 to teach from the pulpit in various capacities that some of those teachings are lost. 
that they're not all recorded. Not that, I would, not that it was some false gospel, but it's just some things that I'm like, thankful, Lord, that that message is now gone because I've learned a thing or two. And so, yes, I do. Me, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I can stand here and say, man, there's some things that I bear responsibility for that I want to make right. But in some ways, no, it's not. In some ways, no, I'm not sitting here today trying to say, hey, hey, you guys got to own this and, and, and some of the damage that's been done. No, what I would say is we can't always help what some people say or do, but I sure can help what those around me in my actual circle of people that I can influence, which, by the way, is very small. And I don't say that to to try and suggest that anybody's insignificant. I think that's actually the way that it's supposed to be. But in this world today, we fancy ourselves to be influencers and and to reach millions, and that needs to be our job, but it's entirely unrealistic. Look around this room right now. Look at how many people are sitting in here. This is by no means a big church, but this looks like a lot of people to me. And this is second service. And I'm thinking, how am I as a pastor supposed to be influential in these people's lives? more than on just Sunday? What does discipleship look like? How am I? Oh my goodness. It's enough for me to look at a few of you in the room and say, let's, let's try and do this this week, right? By Friday, maybe we can really connect and sharpen one another. My goodness. And, and God gives some people reaches and he gives them platforms that I say, praise God for it. But generally speaking, the, those that we can really have an influence over, it's relatively small. And I would say, yes, it includes our neighbors and it includes some coworkers and different things like that. I have control over that group of people in terms of what they see and hear from me. And as a product of that, what they might think about God, what they might think about a believer and how he lives his life. We all have that responsibility. Paul is saying here, speaking directly to the Jew in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? I mean, they hear Paul's digging deep. I mean, he's sort of turning the knife. It has gone in and he's turning it a little bit by saying, listen, you think you're special? You think you deserve something? You think you're righteous because of this? If you don't keep it, if you're not a doer of the law, if it's all just outward circumstances, how do you feel about this Gentile who you're looking down on and judging that they're the ones that are going to judge you? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Oh, that we would live our lives in such a way where we would say, Lord, change me from the inside out. And Lord, I don't care about anybody else's praise other than yours. That that's what we would seek after. Friends, for, and I know we come from different denominational backgrounds in some cases. And so for some of you in the room, church membership's a big thing. For Calvary folks, it's just like attendance, right? Like, here you hear, is this your church home? You're in, you're getting involved, praise the Lord. So if it's your church membership or your attendance or your baptism even, or maybe it's as simple as uh, the t-shirt that you're wearing or the decal on the back of your car or uh, the social media and what that portrays or it's your family history as we spoke to earlier, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. If the true gospel of grace has not invaded every area of your life, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, I don't care how moral you are, how religious you are, 
how many verses you know, or how often you're sitting in this room. You're just as lost as those that Paul describes in chapter 1. And of those who are truly lost in their sin, but the ones that are suppressing the truths of God and saying they don't believe in God, at least they're not pretending to represent Him to the rest of the world. But for those who call themselves Christians, may I just say, as simply stated as it may be, you'd better be one. If you're going to say, I know Jesus, you better know Him and then act like it. Live it out. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about works. I'm not talking about being legalistic with the different things you do. I'm saying live your life for Christ so that it's on display. And when you screw things up, own it. Ask for forgiveness. Apologize. Love people. I don't ever want to again be lumped into a group guilty of blasphemy, of, of causing others to blaspheme God. So what am I asking of you today? Listen, Remember how all this stuff goes together. I mean, for, for Paul, go back to 116 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm going to live it out. It's got power. It's transformed my life. And so I'm going to continue to then live my life in a way that it shows other people what God can do. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Did you memorize it yet? How many hands? How many hands? How many have getting it down? Whoa, we need more hands than that. We've got to get more. Listen, I'm not judging you. We just got to do it, okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, because God has not given you what you deserve, because He has shown you mercy, what do we do? Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Right? Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to what? Test and prove what is that good and perfect and pleasing will of God. This is what he's getting after. He's saying, guys, all this religion, all this stuff, get done with it. It's about the gospel. Let it transform your life. I'm going to bring the worship team up to close us in song. We're going to sing from Christ Be Magnified again because as we sing those words, what are we singing? Lord, I want you to be magnified from the altar of my life. I am putting my life, Lord, on the altar and I want people to see you. I want you to be magnified, not me. Guys, please, please don't misunderstand me today. And if there's things that I've said that have ruffled some feathers, don't get lost in that. We must if we are the church, come back to the truth that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that will accomplish everything that we desire. It's the gospel that this world needs. And Jesus has said, it's you guys, it's us who are going to bring it to them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the conviction that your word brings, Lord. It's good for us. It's necessary. And Lord, I would just pray that, Lord, we would take seriously what we read in, in Scripture. That, and that if there's anyone here today that maybe, Lord, religion has been what they've been in for years, Lord. The routines, the involvement in all things church. But like a Pharisee drawing near to you with their lips, their heart was actually far from you, that today would be the day where they'd say, enough is enough. Lord, I surrender my life to you. 
that as we evaluate and allow you to search our hearts, Lord, and, and see if, if there's a lack of the fruit of salvation in our lives, if there's continued sin, Lord, and judgment towards other people and a desire to condemn other people, that we'd be willing to say, man, do I really know this gospel of grace? And to get right with you. And for those who know you, for those who have surrendered their lives to you, Lord Jesus, Christian, don't leave here today without making that commitment again to say, Lord, I want to live my life for you. Lord, I want my life to be on display for you. Lord, do such a work in me that I would no longer be ashamed of the gospel, that I would, I would abandon, Lord, I'd let go of maybe some of the, the things I have a hold on in this world that are causing me, Lord, to, to just not live each day, Lord, with a sense of abandon the sense of, of dependence on you, whatever it is, that we would be willing to say, Lord, I, I, I want my life to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. I want my life to point people towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.